If you uh, would like to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, <clears throat> we are going to f- finish the letter this morning. So we'll be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. And um, some reflection on the word causes me to mention this to you. I know this is, we're getting close to travel season. This is the time of year you pack your car up and it brings to my mind every year that my family, we go to West Virginia and I pack the car up. Those are one of those activities I used to think that I packed the car because I was so good at it. I think the reality is, is I just like it. I, I like it. I'm finding there's a few little places. In general, I'm a messy person, but there's a few places where I really celebrate a highly controlled environment. The dishwasher. Me and the dishwasher have had a very good run very good relationship for about eight years. I know exactly how to put the spoons in, which plate should go where. <clears throat> Nobody treats the dishwasher like I do. <laughs> the other place is the pantry. For me, <clears throat> I, I actually am one of those people where all of the soup cans face the right way. Like I twist them. I actually do that all through categorize the macaroni and cheese. Um, I don't like it when my wife buys off-brand because they don't look good on the shelf. Like to me, it should all be like the Crimson Campbell, you know? I mean, Campbell is such a good label. I just want the whole room to be Campbell soup. Uh, And packing the car. So I like packing the car. I like uh, organizing it. I get these Rubbermaid bins and I put things in their proper categories, the hiking boots and the winter clothes and the board games and so on and so forth. And I, I pack the van like Tetris. It's just perfect. And everything is great until she shows up with a half dozen plastic giant grocery bags of knickknacks and paddy whacks. Like, I do all of this packing, and then my wife, she's like, this is a bag with a banana and a charging cord in it. Like, you know, we, I can say this because we love each other, but you know bananas and charging cords don't go together just as well as I do. Nobody should do that. Or like, here's a bag with a shoe. A shoe. Or, you know, and so all of this good work, this good, noble, moral work, I should say, (laughs) has been done. And then right, what do you see when you open it up? You see six giant plastic, not giant as in big, just giant grocery store bags full of junk, hairbrushes and decks of cards. So why am I saying this? Because we're, we're... at the end of this letter, and First uh, Thessalonians, we're at the end of the letter, and everything has been handled in such an orderly way thus far. 
And right as we're about to close this letter up, we're going to get this list, this list of behaviors. And when I read these things, just as I'm reading through the Bible, I get to the list at the very end, and for me in my mind, something says it's a haphazard list, as though uh, Paul stapled this list to the back of the letter. Or if you receive the, the first recipients of 1 Thessalonians, they read their letter and then they turned it over and there was a post-it on the back with this list. Okay, that's sort of how, in an unstudied way, when I get to once everything's said and then Paul says, uh, he doesn't say this, but when it sounds to me like, oh, and another thing, it feels like it's just sort of thrown into the back of the letter. And what I want us to appreciate this morning is, uh, I, I actually don't think that's what's happening. I think there is a general mood around this list. I think what this list really is, you might call it a snapshot or a picture that Paul has gone through this letter and he's dealt with some larger issues and dealt with the supremacy of Christ in all things and the presence of the Holy Spirit and the return of Christ. These things have been dealt with. And at the end, before he closes out, he reminds them, this is what it should look like. Like you may not be able to see Jesus, but you can see church. This is what it should look like. It's a closing picture of if all of this is true, well, here's what our life together should appear to be. And I just... I want to start this morning by thinking, I don't think this is haphazard. I think this fits very nicely into this letter that's very basic. This letter is about the basic faith. And what church should look like is basic. So we're going to walk through the list. Sometimes lists are kind of a tedious way to learn. But we're going to walk through the list this morning about seven ideas. And uh, all through it, I just want us to think that what Paul is doing for us is giving us a picture of what our life together should should aim towards. And, uh, and with that, I think we can, we can set out. So let's look at the first on the list. It's, verse, it's chapter 5, verse 12 and 13. So we're 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 and 13. He writes, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So that's the first part of this picture is, you might say, a healthy body of Christ respects and esteems their laborers and their leaders. Now, I will admit this is a... Passages like this are always uncomfortable for the preacher uh, because he's sort of involved in the text. And I will say it on the outset, I feel very well cared for <clears throat> But um, I've been challenged this week, both by the Lord and by others. I actually was going to skip this. In fact, some of you may remember two weeks ago, we, I said we're at the end of the study. There were several reasons, but I just am, I'm uncomfortable talking about uh, these sorts of passages. But actually, verse 27 got me, it challenged me. Verse 27, Paul writes, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Like, <laughs> it's talking to me? I mean, like, a, so that, that kind of has a sharp barb to it of don't pass up the word. And then 
in conversation, Pastor Terry, Pastor Dwayne, and I were on a retreat this past Monday, Monday and Tuesday. And Pastor Dwayne just said to me, well, do they know to pray for you? Shouldn't you, shouldn't you ask them to pray for you? And I thought, you know, I should. So I would cover your prayers. Uh, and I would say, in a broader teaching, uh, <clears throat> it might be worth giving your mind and your spirit to those who minister in labor with me and among you. Uh, uh, you know, I probably gain more visibility than I deserve. I'm sure that's the case. And there are many who lead in labor uh, in our church. And if down the hallway and throughout among you, I just want to put this teaching in front of you. This is the teaching of the Lord. And um, receive it in the Spirit. So that maybe when you see them next, you say thank you. Or, uh, or yes, <laughs> if it's a question. Or maybe even there's someone here who's going to be challenged to say, would you forgive me? Uh, but in this picture, Paul is saying a, a community of Christ views their leadership this way. And <clears throat> that's the beginning. Okay, we'll move. Number two. It's at the very end of 13, and it's a fairly short phrase. The phrase uh, says more than the number of words in it. It says, be at peace among yourselves. Be at peace among yourselves. Now, to be at peace, it sounds like a state of being. Okay, and it is. To be at peace is a state of being. But it's a state of being that requires a tremendous amount of active energy. You don't just, you're not just in the state of peace uh, effortlessly, especially as a fellowship. We have to work to be in the state of peace with one another. It reminds me of, you know, in grade school when I'd get bored in math class, I would lean back on my chair and try to balance on the back two legs. You ever do this in class? And, you know, if you get it just right, you kind of, you do this thing. And you, if you're really bored, you're timing yourself. Like, that was four seconds. And you do it again. Uh, that act of trying to balance on two legs, that to be in a state of balance requires a lot of energy. Your body's doing this. And it's, you're, you're uptight. If you're, you're counteracting. You're tense. All of that work just to be at balance. That's what it means to be in a state of peace. Tremendous amount of active energy. There are some in the list that are going to come, three, four, and five, that might actually commend themselves to the idea. So they might actually edify this idea of what it means to be at peace. But I think there are a few things we could say in its own right. For one, I do not think that to be in a state of peace suggests disengagement, disconnection, and distance, which is the classic way that people avoid conflict. So if people just want things to be at peace, a lot of times what they do is they just stand farther off Okay, that is not real peace. That's like peacekeeping, not peacemaking. Okay, that's enabling and it's passive. And more and more, every decade that goes by in our culture, this is becoming the trend of distance ourselves from one another and just hope it all works out. Eventually, we have to meet. 
So it doesn't suggest this kind of disengagement and disconnection. It is an active command. It requires you roll your sleeves up. You know this uh, notion, right? So you, you're, you're moving to a new area. I'm going to give this kind of as high-minded of a picture as I can. You move to a new area. You find a church. And if you rarely go to the church, you could, you could think all sorts of wonderful things about it. And the less you go to church, the more, maybe the more good you're allowed to think about it. It's actually as you start to draw into the church that you eventually hit that bow wave of realness where the sin shows up and the sinfulness of the fellowship becomes reality. This is the tr- truth with a small group too. You, first small group's fun. The 30th small group is like, huh, they're going to be here again. You know, there's, there's this realness that shows up there. Now, passive, the passive reaction would be just to step away. What he's saying here is, no, roll your sleeves up and make peace. Push in. Here are a few other things that come to mind that really challenge the state of peace in a fellowship. I'm going to call them the things that seem to be small. Things like gossip or clicks, unresolved hurt. Many things related to social media. You think they're not big, and they're not. But little things have a way of undermining really big things. It seems like a little thing to you, but if it's life, if your life is in Christ, it's it's your you're you're muting the expression of Christ. There's an old phrase. I don't know where I heard these things, but have you ever heard the phrase "death by a thousand henpecks" or <clears throat> "death by a thousand uh, paper cuts"? <clears throat> People talk that way. You know, a henpeck. We have chickens. Henpeck ain't that bad. Like I go to take an egg and it pecks me. I'm like, is that all you got? I'm taking that egg. That's not bad. A thousand of them. It's this notion of some of the best things in the world can be worn down and killed through just the repetition of the smallest sort of ailment. We should note that the life of the church is governed by people who are attentive to small things in their life. Here are some other lesser things that I would say, lesser agendas that we should we should note, interrupt the peace of the church. Politics, business prospects, stylistic preferences. We should remind ourselves, this is the house of God and this is the people of God. I know everybody here has a style of worship, of music. I'm also keenly aware that many of you do not hear the, the kinds of songs you would like to hear on Sunday. I am also keenly aware that our worship leaders on any given Sunday are playing songs that may not be their own either for you. That is what it means to work to be at peace. It's active. You're laboring for others. And that'll never go away. Now, when we look at something like this, if you don't have the mission of God in your 
spirit. If you don't have a memory of the notion that God made peace for you, right? You were at enmity with the Lord and God rushed in, shed his blood so that you might have peace with God. If those things, if that narrative is a distant sort of trivial jetty in your life, but it's not center, how do you even begin to do this? You're going to put distance between yourself and the first problem in the church. Just trust me. You're not going to roll your... Or you're going to get like in and blow the thing up. How do you do this if Christ is not in you? Let's look at the next one. Verse 14. Paul writes, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So I kind of group them. Admonish, encourage, help. This group of people are the ones in your estimation, right? Because you might be someone in need of help to someone else's estimation. But in your estimation, these are the people in the church who are in need, aren't carrying their weight, take more than they give. Notice he says, be patient with them all. We should be thoughtful of how the world treats these sort of people. The world either uh, kind of ostracizes them or enables them. But what God calls us to do is the right thing by them. So the idol, it doesn't say give the idol charity, nor does it say tell the idol he's a bum. It says admonish the idol. Admonishment is a difficult idea. Admonishment is like friendly challenge. It's like you're coming alongside of somebody as a friend, but you have God's holy standard in mind. So you're a friend, and you are in your friendship carrying a dissatisfaction on their behalf. You're saying, that's where we need to go. We, how do we get there? Admonishment's hard. He's saying, you don't walk away from them. You don't judge them. You certainly don't enable them. You admonish them. You encourage the faint-hearted. You actually help the weak. You don't judge the weak, you help the weak. You really help the weak. You don't just give them what they want, you give them what they need. And over all of this patience, who knows, you might be in need next week. Communities like ours are typically filled up with people who are proficient and efficient and productive, which means uh, that we probably do not, you might want to assume this, that if you're at all like this zip code, you do not view weakness the way God does. Nor do you have the natural reactions of mercy and of genuine truthful help that our, our Lord Jesus Christ had when he found you. It's probably, probably worth guessing, just a hunch. But the, and Paul's teaching here, and have patience with them all. How do you do this, by the way, if you don't have Jesus in you? Man, these commands without the Spirit are just dead weight. It just sounds tedious apart from the Lord. 
Let's look at the next one. Uh, four, it's verse 15, number four. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. No one repays anyone, but seek to always do good for one another and everyone. Do you hear that? You got a sense of the scope? No one here should ever do evil to anyone, should ever repay evil for evil. You should never, ever, this is the, the holy standard of Christ. You could say, did Jesus live this way? Okay, that's the holy standard of Christ. You should never, ever have your, your view of your just desserts as the primary concern in your life, but rather you should preoccupy yourself with doing good for others. That's what he's saying. It's not what you think you deserve. It's what you are able to do. These are one of these things that if the mission and the purpose and the work of the Lord and the power of the Spirit is not in you, how does this happen? I think when we are reminded of what Christ has done for us, <clears throat> we can admit we actually don't want what we deserve. See, this is the hallmark of the genuine Christian. The genuine Christian operates from a disposition of having received mercy. And so that begins to flavor the view of how they should treat others. If they're standing in a position of having received great mercy, then it seems a little bit ironic and illogical or paradoxical that we would then deserve what we deserve from, or demand what we deserve from others. Rather, should we not adopt the manner of Christ? In view of the mercies of God, this is Romans 12, offer yourself up as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord. You hear that? It's all over the Bible. Don't operate with yourself in mind. Operate with others in mind. <clears throat> Let's go to the next one. Verse 16, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Rejoice, pray, give thanks. This is God's will. Rejoice, pray, give thanks. Always, constantly, in every circumstance. This week in Bible study, somebody, we were talking about what does it mean to pray continually? Does it always pray like... Do I need to stop preaching to pray? Some of you might be like, please. <laughs> please do. But uh, we were talking about what does it mean to pray constantly? And someone said, well, I look at my phone constantly. So think about how many times you reach for your phone and pray that many times. And I'm pretty sure by that point you'll have it figured out. Okay? If the number of times you pray equals the number of times you reach for that little rectangle, like... Things will come out right. I had a friend who put a sticker on the screen of his phone, right smack dab in the middle. Got in the way. It was just so annoying to look at. But it reminded him to pray. So every time he looked at his phone, he was prompted into prayer. That's kind of what it means to pray continually. Continually. 
Last Sunday, uh, uh, Bart preached out of Philippians, and there was a similar, right, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice, and there was this conversation of prayer. There's a, this notion of joy. Joy is something that is available to us. We have joy because of what God has done, right? Our joy is related to the promises of God, which means that when you're walking with the Lord, joy is at much closer I'm just telling you how it is, right? When we're walking with the Lord, and it'll resonate with you. When you're walking with the Lord, joy is closer, prayer is more frequent, and thanksgiving is more natural and far less circumstantial. Like the tighter your walk is with God, the more and more joy becomes from, like the real source of joy is in your life. And the more naturally and continually you pray, and by the way, the more thankful you are regardless of your circumstances. The quandary is when our walk with the Lord has strayed, then we find joy is hard to find and we find ourselves praying only as required. And we find that our sense of thankfulness is highly conditional to our circumstances. If things are good, I'm thankful. If things are bad, I'm not thankful. And I just want to remind us, that's related not actually to your circumstances, but to your walk. That's a product of your walk with the Lord. He says here, be thankful in all circumstances. <clears throat> the, the suggestion of this is God's attention to you in your life is not intermittent. It's not as though when God has his eye on you, things go well, but then he gets busy over in Malawi and he looks over there and now your life is difficult and it's difficult because he's not paying attention to you. That's not the case. The charge to be thanks, thankful in all circumstances, for this is the will of the Lord in Christ Jesus. Be thankful in all circumstances. The notion is that God is continually intentional with you to bring good out of your life in every single situation you find yourself in. In all your circumstances, God is equally equally intentional. I'm not saying that he's created your, your circumstances. You and I both know sometimes we lie in the bed we made. What I will say, though, is that no matter what bed you're lying in, God is there to bring good out of it. So you may have stumbled into a circumstance, but God is not surprised, and God is at work to bring good out of that circumstance. Think of your greatest trials. Do you have bad health? Or a lost job? Or a failed covenant? A wayward child? A shattered dream? You name it. Those things, this passage says, God is working to bring good out of that train wreck for you. So give him thanks. In other words, the degree to which you believe that's true will be reflected in the way you give him thanks. There's a passage in Romans. <clears throat> it's a popular passage. I'll just read it to you, and you'll, you'll probably recognize it. It says, this is Romans 8.28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. It's a, it's a desk calendar verse right? Oh, it just makes you, it should be on a calendar. 
We should note, by the way, this is how the paragraph starts. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Right? That passage is, is just sown deep into a conversation of suffering. You know, the paragraph before it starts this way. For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. The paragraph that comes after it starts this way. What shall we say then? If God's for us, who can be against us? And he starts to talk about who can bring any charge against us? Who can condemn us? He's going to be quoting scriptures, scriptures that say things like this. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep for the slaughter. And he's going to say, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. Do you see what he's saying? There is not a moment in your life, not one moment in your life, where God has not been willing and working to bring good out of you, regardless of your circumstances. Now, if God isn't in you, how do you even begin to do this? If you're not reminded of the mission of God and of what he's done and how he's died for you and the way he's forgiven you and how he's put a spirit in you and what he's called you to and the gift of life that he's given you and the way he's surrounded you with a community of believers and a word that explains his will to us and helps us understand his nature, if this is not a regular part of how you respirate in life, how do you even begin to be a thankful person? Let's look at number six. Verse 19, it says, Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Do not quench the spirit. Now, for some of us, this might sound a little bit strange. <clears throat> I'm going to give you a very, very practical perspective on it. So, there certainly can be a more enthusiastic or charismatic perspective on, the, on this thing. And I'm, I'm just going to speak at a, like a most practical, how, how I most commonly view these things. Because I think this idea of quenching the spirit, I bet you you know it when you see it. You may not be able to put it to words, but I bet you you know it when you see it. Have you ever walked into a church or been part of a fellowship where you've, you thought to yourself, is God even here? Like it's hollow and it's cold. And you're like, if the spirit if the spirit were here, he'd probably left eight years ago through the back door. Like it's just religion. It's dry religion. That would be an example of an environment in a fellowship that has quenched the spirit, thrown water on the spirit, doused out the spirit. Just as a practical example. And how does that happen? Well, it could happen in lots of ways, but very often it follows sort of this path of a community of believers who at some point in time gain a sense, they gain a sense or a belief that their, their expression of worship, their manner of practice, their current membership, their current preferences, that those things represent truth. Okay? When that happens, and by the way, every community of faith is going to be challenged with this across time, of a body of believers that come through, and at some point in time, there's almost like a, a freezing of this is what it means to do church. 
right here, right now. And, and then all eyes start to turn inward about like maintaining that feeling for those people in that way. Okay? That is the most common and most practical way that I observe in my life the Spirit of God being quenched among the people of God. Because they're no longer looking for a new song or new leaders or new look or new ideas or new perspective. There's sort of a rinse-repeat notion, which the truth is, is Jesus, this Holy Spirit of God, is constantly doing something new in us. Constantly doing something new in us. Because there's an entire world that is in decay. So when the church acts as though it's arrived, when outside the walls is a a world that's decaying, that has got to grieve the Holy Spirit. I think it's a warning sign when people of a community think that attaining to right doctrine is the destination. It's not the destination. That's not the goal. The goal is to live life full of the Holy Spirit and to test it with right doctrine. That's what he says here. Don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecies. Test them, and then do what's good out of it. In other words, keep the flame alive. Keep looking for new. Keep not even looking for new. Be receptive to new. You know, when Jesus Christ ascended, he didn't take the Holy Spirit with him. He ascended and sent the Holy Spirit from him so that the church could stay alive. That is, you can think of this in a lot of ways, but that is probably the most common way that I observe the Spirit of God being quenched is when the members of a fellowship begin to act like owners of the church. There have been some churches in my life where I thought the best thing that could happen, and I'm not, I was not part of these, but I mean connected to where I thought the best thing that could happen is they could get a good pastor who could come and help them close the doors. It was just done. Life in Christ. Life in the Spirit. That is the goal. Last one, number seven. Verse 22. Abstain from every form of evil. Now it's short. I'll just add, like I have with the others, I don't know how you begin to abstain from every form of evil if you're not walking with the Lord, right? You can, you can wish, uh, it, particularly in the, the world of addictive behaviors, they're hard enough to stop in the first place. To do it without God seems to me to be downright impossible. but to be walking with the Lord and living a life of his love and approval even as you trip and stumble out of these behaviors, man, how else would you, how else would you do it? The interesting thing about this one, number seven, is, do I not have number seven? It's in the Bible, I promise. There it is. Okay, good, Whew. Uh, the interesting thing about number seven, abstain from evil, is in my younger years or in my younger form of faith, that sort of was my preoccupation. Like the, the, uh, the Christian of my 20s was anchored around abstaining from evil. It might have been because my passions were so high. I don't know, maybe that's natural. But what I thought, what I, what I find interesting is number seven was for me, like 
the all-encompassing walk of Christ. For some reason, for many years of my life, I thought, what does it mean to walk to Christ? It means that I don't do this certain codified list of behaviors that are wrong. I just want us to note how it sits in this list. Do you see how, how active and engaged almost the entire list is until the very number seven, right? Respect and esteem, be at peace, acknowledge, encourage, and help, prioritize doing good, rejoice, pray, give thanks. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. Even that is a prohibition. It's really an active statement. It's saying have the courage. Have the courage to, as you get old in the faith, to stay loose and open for change. I just want us to see, if you have a faith that's very much governed by what you're not supposed to do, I guess what I want to say is, is you have one-seventh of the list. One-seventh. And that might be why it's not that satisfying in you. So how do we do these things? You know, if we <clears throat> just look at this list by itself, I, I feel like it's, it's daunting, even when I know that God's on our side about it. It's daunting. I would say this. I think that there's, if we're walking in the Spirit, these things start to take place naturally. Okay, so really why I think that Paul's packing this in very carefully to the back of the letter is that believers in Jesus should see this list. This is basic faith, okay? This isn't advanced faith. This is basic faith. They should see this list and something in them should be like, yep, that's it. That's what a real church is. Like aspirationally. Like there's parts of me that aren't quite there or people in here, you know, might, different things might have spoke to you. For some person that might have been caught at don't gossip and someone else might be caught at another element or, or something else. You're, we're variously being challenged by things in this list, but I think there's a sense that if the Spirit's in us, we look at it and go, that's it. That, that is church. That's the body of Christ. Because Jesus might not be seen, but the church is visible. We are the witness of Christ. And if you're wondering how all this happens, actually, it's in the benediction. It's in the benediction. In fact, I'll ask you to stand if you don't mind. Would you just stand? I'm going to read this benediction over you. This is exactly, okay, so this benediction is the end of 1 Thessalonians. It's chapter 23, and Paul says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. You see that? Who's going to do it? May the God of peace himself sanctify you. And may he make you, may he make your whole, your whole spirit and soul and body blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he says. And he says, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. That's our benediction this morning. May the God of peace himself sanctify us completely. And may our whole spirit and soul and body be found blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who calls us is faithful. He will surely do it. Lord, we pray this would be true. Send us now in your spirit, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.